All right, so as, uh, as many of you know, we're in a, in a mostly year-long series on the book of Galatians. We're calling it Set Apart because we're asking questions out of, this, uh, out of this book as to how our church ought to operate and then generally how the entire church ought to operate out of its belief in the gospel. And so we're, we're digging into that. And in this particular section, we're reading about this really famous moment in uh, Christian church history, and it's, it's really quite a surprising moment. It's surprising for a number of reasons. And the, the main reason that, that stuck out to me this time is the fact that it's even in the Bible. Um, if you were creating, as so many people have postulated, that if you were you know, a disciple of Jesus who had seen your leader die, and you wanted to keep your, your religion going. You wanted to build kind of this base and this new religion, and you knew that the man had died, and you were going to kind of fool people into thinking that he had risen from the dead. If you were doing something like that, um, you would want to create something as bomb-proof and foolproof as possible, in which the leaders looked very competent and strong, and as if they knew what they were doing. And you would not want to preserve inward conflict and the hypocrisy of your greatest leaders, would you? That seems like a strange thing. Even, even many scholars have noted this is almost an authenticating mark of Christianity is the fallenness, the imperfection, and the brokenness of the leaders as portrayed in Scripture all the way through. And the fact that this story is here in Galatians shows us that, that Paul is not sugarcoating the gospel to lure people to this kind of personal, happy faith. He's giving a real account of a community of people that have difficulties, that struggle, that even disagree. And the truth is that is just what Christian community or any real community is. And so I want to I sort of set this up by just saying, to think about this, if living out faith and community for you, or if entering into something like discipleship for you, if the assumption is that that's always going to be a happy time or an easy thing or a pleasurable thing, uh, it's not. It can't be. Just like no real friendship, no real marriage can be that. If, um, if relationship, if community, if Christian community doesn't sometimes unearth you or cause some discomfort, um, if only those you disagree with ever receive any critique, then you aren't, as a community, dealing with a God who can equally bring you to account, or you aren't in a community who's willing to really go there, to really enter into the difficult conversations. And that is what we need. Now, have we struck that balance here at this church? No. I, I, don't, I don't think it's ever a balance you perfectly Strike. I mean, look, here in Galatians, we're reading about the Apostle Peter failing after having personally lived and ministered with Jesus, slipping within living memory of his time with Jesus, slipping into hypocrisy. We, we are always going to be on this journey of failing with one another, but that is being in community, and that is why we need this story. Because in the Christian community, we're gathering around one non-hypocrite. One perfect leader, and that's Jesus. So this story is surprising if you think the apostles are trying to create you know, an appealing religion or church experience, but it isn't surprising 
if they're telling the truth and inviting people into actual relationship with God and with others. And that's because relationship always requires this, submission. Submission to one another, submission to God, which means my life is not my own. It means love, and it means do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that's a scary word, right? Submission. That's like the least favorite word of our day. Because who submits to who? Right? That's always the question. Who who submits to who? And in the church, what guides our submission? What is it that we're submitting under? Just anything? And the answer within the church, which is not simple, is the gospel. We're submitting underneath the gospel. So what is that? What is the gospel? We all probably can answer that question to some degree, but by definition, it's the good news of, and simply put, God's kingdom as revealed to us by God, especially in the person of Jesus and in his work, his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. And that isn't something we can naturally follow or, or even follow at all without regular reassessment or without community or without formative practices. It's not a simple thing to do. This past year, I remember when it hit me, in, in our church, this is going to be a tough time. And I, I remember the COVID stuff, and I remember all that, but I, but I remember the moment it dawned on me it was going to be a hard time. And that was when I observed in digital spheres people in this community questioning each other's faith, if it was real and if it was true. And I don't, I'm not saying that's something you can't do. It's actually a valid conversation, but it was happening in the most difficult place for it to happen, in the most difficult place to know and listen and understand people well, in the most difficult place to have it done effectively And I I thought, uh uh-oh, if we're going head-to-head on this and we have an election coming up, (laughs) that was the only one that was on my mind at that point, and we have that coming up, this this is going to be really difficult. And as the year went by in our community and almost every other church, um, I've mentioned before that we gather other church leaders together and we heard this from almost every single church, that people gathered on sides of all the issues this past year whether it was COVID or race or the election, and at times pronounced one another guilty of, in fact, denying the gospel, or at least being on some form of slippery slope away from the gospel. And I I know that all of us would love a break. We would love to be done, right, with all of that. But I think we need to move, not not into the conflicts necessarily, but we need to learn from what we've seen and from what we've experienced. In fact, if you think about it, the dust is settling a bit. Now is a great time to reflect. It's still fresh. We can remember how we felt, but it's not as raw. It's a great time to look back and say, what, what can we learn? We need to learn from what we've gone through. We need to learn how to face issues in unity. We need to learn how to live in community. We need to learn how to live in light of the, go- of the gospel. And we'll need one another to do it. So we need perseverance. So here's what I want to explore this evening as we seek to learn from such things. 
Um, and, and consider this a part one and next week a part two, okay? So this week, out of this text, I want to ask the question, how do we identify what a gospel issue is so we know which things to take so seriously? And next week, I want to ask the question, how do we address these issues in the light of the gospel? How does the gospel shape the way that we address the issues that we have? Listen again to, uh, to what Abby read to us. And by the way, Abby, that was killer. It was great. I know you were so excited to read publicly. So, so thank you. You did a great job. But uh, I'm going to amplify it a bit this time just to give you some, some maybe surrounding ideas and to kind of bring it home. So, so here it is, Galatians 2.11 again. But when Cephas, and that's the apostle Peter, came to Antioch. Now, if you remember Antioch, it was a very diverse center of Christianity where a whole lot of different thinking and types of people, a lot of non-Jewish people were. So when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face. And I think that's an important idea right there. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... Now, James, of course, is a co-apostle with Peter from Jerusalem, someone Peter knows very well, a relative of Jesus, okay? Before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, of course, is this old word for acting, essentially, which it's pretending to believe in something that you don't actually believe in or pretending to have a conviction that you do not actually have. That's hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Basically, Paul has just exposed the great apostle Peter, right? Who Jesus had said, upon your faith, upon you and your confession of the faith, I will build my church. Peter, who actually walked with Jesus, unlike Paul, right? He is confronting and exposing him in front of everybody, Jewish leaders, other apostles, and Peter had a lot to lose. Because though the Christian church was relatively small and really didn't have a lot of influence on the culture around it, it it wasn't shaping Antioch, it wasn't taking over Rome, but the Jewish segment of the church, as represented by James and his friends, was the strongest and the largest. They had the infrastructure, if you will. They had the synagogues where people had started to accept Christianity within the Jewish spaces of worship, and the the Jewish spaces of worship were beginning to even transform to some degree into the Christian church in some areas. They had the knowledge of the scriptures. They were the ones who had memorized it and who had the rabbis that would teach it. They had really kind of a lockdown on a lot of that That stuff, there was a Greek New Testament out there, but it wasn't as accurate. It wasn't as good. It wasn't as ingrained. And they had the numbers. Peter knew that for a large number of them were converted at Pentecost, and they continued to grow after that. So Peter's not wrong necessarily in what he believes, but he has some legitimate fear. 
Like, he has a lot to lose. If this group doesn't like him and kind of does away with him, he has, he has a lot to lose. And he's not often his beliefs, this scripture makes plain, but was hypocritical in his actions because he no longer lived as if his justification before God depended on the Jewish sacrificial system or the purity laws. We know that. Peter knew that wasn't what his faith was anchored in. He spent time with non-Jewish believers in Antioch. He didn't demand that they rest on anything for their salvation except for faith in Christ alone. And he knew that their actions would be shaped by their change of heart, by the motive, the way that the gospel works, where it orients your heart toward God. He knew that they would change. He didn't expect them to stay the same, but he knew that the gateway into the kingdom for them wasn't to come through the sacrificial law. He knew that their their motive would be by being purified by Christ. So he didn't demand anything from them that would purify themselves outside of Christ, except when these people from Jerusalem came. Then, all of a sudden, he distanced himself from his Christian brothers and sisters and followed the Judaic laws as if he'd never stopped because he was afraid, afraid of them rejecting or turning on him. But it wasn't just Peter, right? Other Jewish leaders at the time followed his example, even Paul's travel companion, Barnabas. And Barnabas had been with him to take the gospel out to the Gentiles. So if anybody knew and had concluded that non-Jewish people could be included in the faith without submitting to the utter, you know, sacrificial law of the Old Testament, it was Barnabas. But Barnabas, when Peter acted in hypocrisy, went along with it. Because why? Because Peter is a very influential leader. Barnabas, like Peter, knew all these things had been fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus had pleased God in every way, that Jesus' death was the atoning sacrifice to end all sacrifices, that Jesus' entrance into heaven on our behalf was the priestly service to end all priestly service. But Barnabas who knew otherwise, was led to hypocrisy because of Peter's influence, which is a great warning in the story. We have influence. And the greater it is, the more it spreads. But look, you don't have to think your influence is great for it to be great. I don't think Peter went into this thinking, my influence is going to throw a wrench in the entire church of Antioch. I don't think he he thought that. And your influence may be far greater than you think. Just, just think about it. I, I have this story of a guy I met at family camp um, as a kid. And I knew this guy a grand total of three days. And if you know my memory, I was just having this discussion with, with Madeline there in the back. I can't remember people's names. Some of you, um, it took me like weeks, and you might remember it. It takes, it takes me a while. But this guy, I met for a grand total of three days in my childhood. His name was Kelly. And I will never forget his name because he left a massive impression on me as a kid. He was older. I think he was like 18, which we all know is extremely mature, right? He was older. He seemed confident. And he included me. He was like, hey, man, do you want to come play volleyball with us? And he just let me tag around with him and his friends. And I remember this person very well. Now, why? Because to me, he was influential. I guarantee if that guy had been from my home church back home, that I would have looked up to him for the rest of my childhood. 
I guarantee it. And if he'd acted a certain way, I would have followed his example. If he had believed something and told me he believed it, chances are I would have believed it. Because to me, he was so influential. And so are you. I don't know one of you. I mean, we, we tried to spend our whole year last year basically saying, all of you have influence. You're all disciple makers. All of you. And that's what I'm saying here. You have it. So this matters. Your life is not your own. You were bought at a great price by Jesus on the cross. So honor God with your body. It's not just about sexuality. That's with how you live. All the way across the board. Your life belongs to Christ, and it's meant to be a ministry to others, and you have influence. So love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind and your beliefs, all of your soul and all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself because you're influential. And your theology, what you believe about God, will always shape your methodology, which is the way that you live as a recipient of grace. It always does. So see where I'm going here? Our our choices flow from our beliefs. So Paul saw Peter doing one thing, not eating or hanging out with some people, not a massive deal. Really, if you take it out of, try to take it out of the Bible and imagine it. Is this that big of a deal? It's not murder. It's not carving idols. It's not sleeping with anyone's wife. He just didn't eat with some people. Paul saw him doing this one thing. Didn't seem like a big deal, but he had eyes to see underneath it an absolutely anti-grace hypocrisy. And he chose to bring it up in front of everybody. So that leads to the question, how do we do that? How do we identify a gospel issue and tell it is important? And I have a, a few headings here. I don't think I'll exhaust it, but a few key things. How do we identify a gospel issue? I think it's important to say this. Gospel issues are in the church among God's people. That's where the gospel is entrusted. Okay, and that could seem obvious, but it's often a difficult thing to discern. I want to work this out. As a Christian who owns a business, for example, like I do, how does the gospel shape it? Is it the same? Is it entrusted the same to my limited liability corporation as it is within the church. I would never say, and I will say, you know, strongly, we must live faithfully as Christians to God's kingdom in everything that we do. But it's not quite the same. The principles of grace will have power in our work. We'll build a culture of perhaps of integrity or of gratitude. But you'll need in a workplace, for example, or in a home, you're going to need some form of law. You're going to need some form of code of conduct. Your business, your home is not a church where you're accepted by faith alone. You're accepted in a workplace by something else and in a home by something else. The government, for example, um, and few nations have an expectation of this, but But in our nation, a lot of us do. The government is not the church. Paul in Romans says that God entrusted the government to bear the sword. He did not entrust the church to. There are definitely some differences. The government is to enforce the rule of law for the public good. 
that's not always going to look like a ministry of grace. Everyone by nature of being God's creation is accountable to God, but, but for what is the question? What is every person and then the various groupings or institutions of people, what are they responsible for? The state has a job it should do faithfully, but don't expect something like the state prison system to operate according to grace entirely. Grace can be there, be proclaimed there. There should be an influence of grace inside of there. But a prison is not a church. Do you see what I'm saying? As with institutions, so it is with people. You can only appeal to gospel motivations in people or institutions that are situated by God's design on the principle of grace. Saved by grace or established upon grace. Somewhere Paul uh, explains this, 1 Corinthians 5.9, uh, something that we often reverse. And I've brought this up in the last year, but, but consider it with new eyes. Um, Paul here says, I told you, Corinthian church, not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you would have to go out of the world. I can hear Paul like, you know, a little thing in his mind going, hello, you know, the only way that, that you don't associate that with those kind of people in the general culture of the world around you is to, like, go to Mars alone. That's the only way. But then he says, but now I'm writing for you not to associate with anyone who na- bears the name of brother or sister if they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reveler, drunkard or swindler, don't even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? And the answer is nothing. It is not those inside the church, or sorry, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. It's not like there's no judgment. But he says, your job is to purge evil from among you. So often in our political and religious context, we want to judge the outsider. And I I get that. There's some fear as to what the outsider is going to do to me. We want to judge the outsider, and we spend an awful lot of time doing it. But Paul says that's not our job. We are to judge those amongst ourselves. And that's hard to do, right? That's difficult. This is our friends. These would be our family members. These are people. We're a small church. This is a little more like early church. Like we're talking about, look around, look on the screen. Names you know, people you sit next to. He's saying confront this stuff in them. That's the folks who often we want to cover for or just go, you know what? They're really nice people. I don't want to deal with that. But it is easy to judge outsiders. But here's the thing. If we're doing that internally, we have tools like relationships, like actual knowledge of one another's stories as we get to know each other. We know what's going on underneath the surface. So you could ask the question back of the Corinthian church, for example, why are these people so sexually immoral? 
Why? As Christians, and you have to get below the surface. And, and I can guarantee you, for, the, for people who knew them, who were in community with them, it's because they were seeking something to fulfill their souls outside of the gospel. And that confrontation of that wouldn't have to just be a yelling match or a get out, but it would be able to appeal to a gospel, deeper, scriptural precedent and come from a real knowledge of the person. Okay? Which leads into my second point. Gospel issues are to be judged within the church, and then the gospel moves outward by grace to draw people toward grace that will transform them. And as with sexual immorality, gospel issues are usually underneath the presenting problem. You know, when you see sexual immorality, you should never be just like, that's the person's only sin. You know, it isn't. Nothing is, right? Nothing that we see in each other is the only sin. And it's usually not the deepest. And we see this in Galatians. Peter's presenting problem doesn't look that bad. He, if you really strip it down, he's just not hanging out with some people this weekend. That's what it looks like. That is all that that really looked like. They were probably only there for a little while. It would be the easiest thing to look at and just go, oh, he just didn't feel like it. He wanted to get together with his friends from Jerusalem. When James' associates left, Peter would have gone back to his normal patterns of hanging out with the non-Jewish people without washing his hands or whatever, and it wouldn't have looked like a big deal. These are the things that get overlooked in our churches constantly, the, the avoidance, right? The disassociation, the, uh, I'll just go to another church for a little bit until that cools off. The cover-ups, you know, I, I'm not going to really talk about how I feel about this situation because I just don't want to stir the pot. And, um, you know, not telling them, here's the 2020, you know, edition of it not telling them you went out to dinner because you know they don't think anyone should go out to dinner. So you go and they say, what did you do last night? And you say, nothing. It's that junk. That stuff. Or that you went to the protest because you know the other person went to the rally. So you just don't talk about it, right? Or you're afraid of COVID and you don't want somebody else to know you're not, you, that you are afraid of COVID because they're not and they think those people are weak. Or vice versa. Or that you're getting a vaccine when someone disagrees with that. Or you're not getting one when someone else agrees with that, right? You don't want to, so you just don't, you don't talk about it. And that, trying to appease everyone, is most similar to what Peter did. And for every one of you who are brave enough to step through the fear of doing that this past year, great work. Because that's the hard stuff to do. It's the hard stuff to do. Now, Paul, when he saw this, he saw something going on that looked like nothing. It looked like literally nothing. It looked like not hanging out with some people for a weekend. Underneath it, he saw that Peter was perpetuating evil things in his avoidance. That's where Paul goes with this. He sees, what, what does he see? Things he talks about in all of his letters. One, he sees that there is a cultural and racial division in the church. And Peter, in his avoidance of his non-Jewish friends, has perpetuated that problem and not faced it and taught through it well. He sees a problem with the doctrinal fidelity of the church. 
in which the purity rituals don't save you, but only Christ crucified can save you. Paul sees underneath Peter's little choice not to eat with these people, he sees an absolute denial of justification by faith, like a core teaching of the church. And he sees division. He sees a, a, a division, a fissure building between those accepted by Christ in the church to where they were not being brought together, they were being separated apart, which is the antithesis of what the work of the cross was meant to do. Paul emphasizes all throughout his books a mystery, and that is that the Jews and the outsiders, the Gentiles, are brought together in Christ. Peter's actions are absolutely undermining the great mystery of the gospel that Paul and Peter preach. So gospel issues are in the church. They're among Christians. They're often under the surface. They deal with motives of the heart, not just presenting problems. And finally, and I think this one's important, they are not all equally critical or urgent. They're not all equally critical or urgent. While it would be great if all of us were steeped in perfect doctrine, uh, myself included, wouldn't that be great if just every word out of my mouth was just pure doctrinal gold? Um, That'd be nice, but we're not. Um, I'm not, no one is, none of you are. Um, And the minute I think I'm the new expert able to spot everyone else's flawed beliefs, I'm in danger of egregious arrogance and pride, both of which are incompatible with the gospel. (laughs) The gospel says I am more sinful than I dare admit, that, that my sin impacts every area of my life. So in a spirit of humility, And of not inspecting the specks in the other person's eye while having logs in our own. And even in the spirit of practicality, it is a good idea to consider what I'm going to call, the fancy phrase will be a rubric of theological triage, okay? Or, you know, get your priorities straight. But think about, think about how important is this one? Is this a big enough issue? And I get this idea, the theological triage from... um, From Al Mohler. Some of you are familiar with him. He put out an article years ago called Theological Triage. And basically what he was saying is like, as we're dealing with the faith in public, and Al Mohler is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So he's kind of a known guy and 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 a solid scholar, thoughtful Christian thinker. But he brings up this emergency room metaphor in which he says, look, in in the emergency room, when you're dealing with crisis, you you have to think, which of these is the most important? Which one is number one, number two, number three, number four, number 50, right? And some number 50s are going to just go home because they're actually not dying at all. And some number ones are going to bypass everybody, and we're going to deal with this one right here, right now. And he suggests three levels when we're thinking about holding to the faith and to the gospel that we, we need to think about. And, and he, I, I think they're really good, so I want to share them with you. And of the three levels, the first are issues that all Christians need to accept to be Christians. And we need to know what those are. And he he said that, and I think he's right, that the fundamentalism that that so many of us grew up with made almost all issues number ones. And that that caused a lot of fracturing. And so we need to be careful not to do that. Second, 
are issues we can disagree on, but that make it kind of difficult to maybe walk together or worship together. And I'll work out what a couple of those might be. And third are issues we can agree to disagree on with no separation at all, that we can, we can worship together freely. These really aren't a problem. So the second and third level issues usually aren't gospel issues, is what I'm saying. We need to discern between those second and third level issues and the, the first tier, number one issue. So what are some of those? I'll, I'll give you some of his thoughts and some of mine. Third level issues are things like, when and how does Jesus return exactly? That, that's described in the scriptures. There are different views. Um, there's a lot of diversity and background on that here at, at Mission. We don't require that you pick one uh, to be here. We have our own thoughts and we teach from an angle, but, you know, it's important. It affects how you think about current events, what's coming next. But it, at the end of the day, we can agree utterly on the gospel generally, and we can worship together despite our feelings on this. You might have some conversations about it, but at the end of the day, there could be a lot of unity and agreement over stuff like that. That's like third level stuff. Second level stuff are a little more difficult. Like if you have a deep conviction that say women should be elders or should not be, it'd be hard to be in a church governed in the opposite direction. It's not impossible, but it's harder. Um, If you have a deep uh, conviction about the continuation of the spiritual supernatural gifts. That's a harder one, right? You have, to, you have to think about that one. Like, if I believe that they have ceased, can I go to a church where people are getting healed today? That's difficult to do, or vice versa. Not impossible, but difficult. I think a 2021 edition could be, how committed are you to public health as a means to love your neighbor. There's a different level of commitment to that idea, and it can make it difficult to to be in the same church and have different ideas. We wrestle through this. We have people here with different ideas on that, but it's not easy. It requires more sacrifice to do that. And then there's tier one kind of stuff. And Al Mohler defines those, and I think he's right, as doctrines that must be central and essential for Christian faith, including crucial ones like the Trinity. Because if Jesus isn't God, that utterly changes the gospel. And the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. There's some really key gospel issues under if Jesus didn't actually become human, then he didn't really fulfill that law. Justification by faith. It's impossible to be a Christian and say that you're justified by anything other than faith in Jesus because that's foundational. The authority of Scripture. If Scripture is just an old text, but it isn't unique and inspired by God, it's impossible to accept its words as formative to your faith. I would add... Others, I think there are many other ones. One I was thinking of that I think could be thrown in here would be something to do with the sanctity of life. I think that's kind of formative Christian stuff. And I mean like a thick view of it. That would include like conception stuff that would include abortion and that conversation. But I think it would be a commitment to the image of God and all people and the ability of anyone to be redeemed and saved by Christ, and for a valuing of those 
lives because God is the creator of those people. It's, it's a creational idea that God is the creator of all people. So there's an absolute love that God has for every single life that begins, every one of the diverse ethnic families on earth that he created, that he designed to be with him in eternity for men, for women, for the elderly, for children, that should fuel all kinds of activity in the church, whether it's advocacy, evangelism, marching, letter writing, policy writing, all kinds of stuff. All kinds of action could come out of that. But the gospel depends on a commitment for us to be committed to any and all people upon, God, upon whom God has set his loving eye for their equality, their access to God, their peace, their lives, and their flourishing. So, There's some examples. I'm saying there are many more. But you have to think through how critical is this to the gospel and how critical is it to the beliefs that prop up the gospel? You you have to ask that question. I I would really impress this. Before we decide to claim that someone has denied the gospel, we should slow down and do some triage. Probably slow down quite a bit. In Paul's case, he was well aware, as is evidenced in the text of the Apostle Peter's actual beliefs about the Gentiles and being justified by faith alone. Paul did not run into the city without a knowledge of who Peter was. Paul knew Peter. He knew people who knew Peter. He knew what he taught. He knew what he experienced. He knew about the Cornelius stuff. He knew all about it. And so he was speaking into Peter's life out of a knowledge of who Peter was, his beliefs, and his own convictions. And he had a keen awareness and was able to name Peter's actual motive for what he did, and it was fear. He was afraid of the circumcision party. So he, he had hit the nail on the head. He didn't just say like, hey, why aren't you hanging out with your friends, you big jerk, right? He went after the real thing that was going on because he knew. And that takes a certain amount of wisdom and listening and waiting and prayer. And so he addressed the hypocrisy under Peter's seemingly harmless snub of his Gentile friends effectively. And to address any of those issues, anything at all that I brought up, you should know a lot of information about the person and the beliefs and the reasons for why they're doing or saying whatever it is that they're saying. And you'll notice that Peter received his rebuke. That's probably one of the most surprising things, right? Is that this big, powerful apostle. I mean, one of the commentaries I read even got into some assumptions of historically what they looked like. I wasn't quite sure why, but they seemed to think that Peter was kind of a big, burly man, and Paul was actually pretty short and bald. And they just made some assumptions that it was hard for for Paul to confront Peter, even just from from a stature perspective. Like, everything was against Paul. Paul's like, Hey, you know, (laughs) stop it. Peter's like, who are you talking to? You know, I don't know. But Peter accepted his rebuke because at least in part, Paul's diagnosis was correct. He understood what was actually happening. He, He saw the real problem. And many of us would do well to pause and consider probably, probably speak to one another, engage and understand the 
perspective of another. Here was something I heard this past year I thought was excellent. You should never argue against a position if you couldn't articulate the position in a way that the person who believed it said, you're right, that's it. That's what I believe. If you could not articulate someone else's position in a way that they would agree, you understand what I teach or what I say, you should not oppose that position yet. You should be able to understand it that well. You should check your sources like five times because that's a real mess right now if you hadn't heard. That kind of stuff is getting kind of difficult. So before we risk a misdiagnosis and become divisive for the glory of God and the gospel, um, slow down, triage, understand what people believe. Because the gospel is hindered by division as much as it is by false beliefs. If you become a divisive person to try to achieve pure doctrine, you will have committed the equal sin. It's not something we want to entertain until we're quite sure. Now, next week, we'll talk about the ways the gospel shapes, the way we address the gospel issues, how the foundational principles of the gospel address how we get at these core issues, because that is just as, if not more important. But for now, we'll leave it there, and we're, we're going to pray and enter into a time of confession together. So um, we worship in three ways here at Mission. Um, we sing together. Uh, this is what we've done earlier at the doxology. Uh, we're going to do this again now. The songs that we sing at this time are a little more confession-oriented, and then they're going to move toward a consideration of Christ's victory in our lives, so they'll become increasingly triumphant. So ride that wave um, and be shaped by those kinds of feelings uh, with us. We give at this time or encourage you to give. We have a giving box in the back. You can give online. You can give through text. But this is, this is how you guys invest in this gospel ministry. Um, for all of us to invest time and to study and to reaching out to people and even to being there uh, whenever you need us, uh, we need your support. And we ask you to do that. Um, and then we, um, I hope, I hope we're on the precipice of being able to take the Lord's Supper again. I'm really glad we get to eat pizza together outside. This is, we're getting there, okay? So, uh, well, we love to take the Lord's Supper. And what that is, even when we can't do it in substance, it's a feasting on Christ alone. And so what that is, is to come to him and say, you are the bread of life. You are the one who teaches me what life really is. And then today, as we think about, you know, we don't want to be divisive. We want to believe these gospel principles. Think of the cup which is, you know, it alludes to his blood that was shed to cover our sins, but it's more than that. It, the wine is pointing us forward to the marriage supper, where one day God brings all of his people together from all times and places, all tribes, peoples, and languages into his kingdom and has a marriage party, and the wine will flow. And so come thinking of what he's doing, of his goodness, and where all this is headed. Um, even as we just pray, meditate on those things until the day we drink the wine together again. And um, I'm going to pray for us, and there's going to be a two-minute space, and I want you to consider this question. In what area of my life do I deny the gospel? And maybe you could pray to God something simple like this. Show me my presenting issue, and then ask, what's underneath that issue, God? Um, And then have mercy on me.
So I'll pray and leave that two-minute space for you. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for these people. I'm so grateful for this church. Um, I know we've had a hard year. We all know it. We feel it. And we just kind of want to be done. But at the same time, we do want to learn. We want to be those kind of people who reflect. We want to be the kind of people who grow. We want to be the kind of people who hear the voice of your spirit, who go through trials and come out stronger, who come out looking at your cross more and more grateful. So may it be so. Shape our church in such a way. Lead us now as we pray, and God, open our eyes to those presenting issues and to the deeper questions we have. And even in the coming weeks, be speaking to our hearts and illuminating our minds to see what your spirit would have to do in each of our hearts.